Hi, and welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the abilities and value of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is John Hendrickson, a senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine. He previously worked and edited for Rolling Stone Magazine, Esquire, and for the Denver Post. His article in The Atlantic, What Joe Biden Can't Bring Himself to Say, was named one of the best stories of 2019 by Longform. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter, which is due out in January 2023. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let me, let me first say that I've been a reader of The Atlantic since I was in high school. <laughs> and I read it every morning uh, on the website. So I, I do actually remember reading your article when it first came out. And given my you know, interest, I, I, I thought it was a stunning article. And it brought up uh, both because you used your own life and uh, now President Biden, but then can, candidate Biden's life to bring forward uh, what stuttering and being a stutterer involves and some of the neurological basis for it and how society perceives it. But let me, let me just ask you how it began for you. And, and I did read in your article how other children you know, made fun of you and how you had to deal with it in a variety of ways. Well, thank you for the kind words about my my story. I really appreciate it. I began to to stutter around age four, which is pretty common for a lot of kids, for a large portion of children, their stutter will disappear on its own with or without intervention. But for a certain portion of the population who stutters, seemingly nothing works to create fluency, which is just a fancy word for uninterrupted speech. And once you reach about age 10, your chance at quote unquote recovering from disfluency or being a person who stutters drastically goes down. And that means that you're likely to keep stuttering for the rest of your life. I did not know that. My parents did not know that. And the therapy for most of history has been rooted in various attempts to remove 
any instance of stuttering. But over the past 20 years, it's evolved to try to help people who stutter manage it. And therapists now work on things like building eye contact, building confidence on clear communication, on even just the desire to communicate. But all of that is fairly new and fairly progressive. Most people out there are taught a simple message, which is that if you don't speak smoothly, you can't be successful. And that's a pretty tough message to get out of your brain. And it takes a lot of work to combat that message. So part of writing that article and a big part of writing my book is wrestling with those challenging messages and uh, trying to figure out a way that people can try to make peace with not only something like a stuttering, but with basically any disorder that society has a stigmatized. Yeah, well, so my uh, disabilities, I'm dyslexic, and I didn't know that for a long time. Uh, I was really good in certain areas uh, academically, uh, but I was atrocious at spelling and also at foreign languages. I was abysmal. I could manage to get D's in Latin, French, and Spanish. I was multilingual really bad. <laughs> Uh, and I also, because of dyslexia, I also have, I don't stutter, but I do have issues with pronunciation of names because I don't see, you know, a person's name. Like I practiced your name multiple times before I wrote it down just so I would say it correctly. Uh, you know, I, and I became aware of this later, uh, after I got my doctor from Harvard, you know, so like I, I knew I was smart, but I knew I was really, for some reason, dumb in this area. And I felt shame and like trepidation of telling anybody about it, you know, because they would think of me differently. And I know in, in your article in the Atlantic, you, you brought up how when you went to a baseball camp, uh, they called you stutter boy. And I know Biden was called stutterhead. I mean, this is like really, you know, base kind of boys being mean, as I think you said, or uh, Biden said, you know, boys can be as mean as girls. And then I think he went to apply for a job at a coffee shop. And, and since we're about inclusion at work, this is a great example of, you know, you had trouble uh, in articulating to the owner. And he basically said, you know, I can't have you here because you'll make my customers uncomfortable. So it's very society driven, this shame, feelings of shame people have, or, uh, you know, fear, or what other negative emotions they have about themselves, but it's really imposed from the outside. 
you know, the way people react to them is just sort of natural after a while to say, well, something's wrong with me and I don't really like it very much. So how did you, um, once you started to recognize this, and I know in the, the blurb around the book, it was about a 30 year odyssey of trying to come to grips with this. So, uh, so you were a 10 year old boy or so and you went to baseball camp and then what happened over the years as you started to confront it and deal with it? My coping mechanism for most of my life was to tell myself that those taunts and those hard moments were rolling off my back. And I would tell myself that, you know, I've, I've lived through a thousand of those moments and I've built up this rhino skin and that nothing can penetrate me. And it really was almost like dissociation. And what I realized later in life, in my mid to late 20s, was that no, these things weren't rolling off my back, but I was simply shoving them way deep down inside me all the way to the pit of my stomach and putting them in a locked box. And as I kept getting older and older, that box was bigger, it was heavier, and I felt more unsettled. I felt, I felt more anxious, more, you know, you, you can think of a dozen negative emotions you could describe there. And then finally around age 30, I felt like I was almost on the verge of a mental breakdown. And friends of mine had been encouraging me to try to go to therapy, not, not speech therapy, but regular psychotherapy. And that was a thing that I resisted. That was a thing that I stigmatized and said, no, I'm not messed up enough to actually go to therapy. No, I can handle this on my own. I had given so much weight to that concept. I had looked down on it. But I felt that I was just kind of in a place where I've never been before. And as I said, kind of on the verge of a breakdown. So I did buckle down and found a therapist and I began going to weekly sessions. And each week, it just worked on 
opening that box a little more, little by little. And then, you know, over time, uh, now I've been going off and on for four years, you give yourself permission to finally articulate some of these things that you never have before and just just get it out there and talk about it with someone. And that, it's almost like literally lightening your load. You know, I felt, I felt my neck and my shoulders felt lighter. I felt less anxious, less ruminative. And that was really the beginning of this process of trying to make peace with a lot of this buried shame. And it, it kept going when I wrote that article about Biden and I, as you noted, I um, talked about both his personal journey with it and all the baggage that comes with it and my own. And that was very uh, transformational as well. And then after the story was published, I kept getting all these letters and emails from other people who stutter and they would tell me their own stories. And that is a thing that keeps happening to this very day. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I met this woman a couple of years ago at a conference who was a vice president at Intel and uh, very attractive, long blonde here. And we started to talk and she admitted to me that she was wearing hearing aids and that she had for years hidden the fact that she was mostly deaf uh, from her colleagues and she would do different tactics. Like, you know, if there was a speaker at the company, she'd get to the front row or uh, she would position herself at a conference table in a way she should be close to the, the head of the unit or something. But uh, over time, this uh, elaborate uh, uh, game she was playing caused her to become bulimic and anorexic. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, she disclosed this about a year before I met her. And everyone said, why did you do this to yourself? I mean, and she feared that she couldn't advance in the company, that it would be, you know, a stigma. Uh, and it, it's striking to me. It is sort of a lot like what gay people went through when they were in the closet and whether they would come out or not come out and all the suppression that was involved in it. So people who have disabilities that you can't see immediately have that choice. And it does seem to go back to like what choice Biden has made to say he used to be a stutterer where just from watching him give speeches and having, I used to work in government, used to write speeches. I mean, you can tell, sort of tell 
that it's still there. And sometimes he loses control of it and then gets himself back. In fact, your colleague, Caitlin Flanagan has a great article today about <laughs> the sorry candidates, the Democrats keep coming up and she does this brilliant analysis of how he uses speech and how he sort of wanders away and comes, I mean, he has a whole elaborate ritual about how he speaks uh, publicly. And, you know, I think in some ways, because he wants to put it in his past and we want him, he feels society wants him to put it in the past and it can't be perceived that this represents his aging or his losing his faculties. He's under this enormous pressure always to say that he used to be a stutterer, but I think your article makes clear that he is still a stutterer, you know, and he needs to sort of accept it. And that would be very liberating for him and also for all stutterers and also for people with invisible disabilities, like the woman I'm talking about. You're just like, you, you're deaf, that's okay. You know, we're the ones who need to accommodate you. And until you tell us that, why hide about it? But Anyways, I thought that was very striking in your article. And it's amazing to think that people can reach the highest levels of power, of fame, of success, but certain things like this can be tough for them still. And there are certain things that our society actively stigmatizes, regardless of your power, fame, wealth, success. And that to me was the most striking thing about Biden. Well, it's, it's again, from your article, the story about how when he was in a parochial school, he, like a lot of people with learning uh, differences, had strategies uh, to deal with the assignments he was given. So he used to, he, if he knew there was uh, a recitation of a part of a book and then they would go to different students, uh, he sort of already calculated where he would be picked on and he would memorize the passage so that he could recite it without looking at it because if he looked at it, he probably couldn't get through it. And you tell that great story about how he was getting through it and then he started to stutter and the nun jumped all over him and you know, ridiculed his name by repeating it in a stuttering manner. And you can see how that would affect somebody for the rest of their life. <laughs> I mean, that just one incident would scar you deeply because you know the whole thing about the church and the nuns and and failing and then being frightened and you know and then their shame and, and all these emotions as with you they lay there and he's overcome it quote unquote you know by his discipline or whatever following his father's words of advice don't complain you know. but that locks you into this cage that you can't get out. And even as he approaches 80, he's still in that cage where I think he'd be a lot better off. And it would, I think, deflect people like Sean Hannity, who ridicule him for his gaffes. Uh, they would look foolish if he would just say, you know, well, you know, I've tried my best, but, you know, it's okay. And, you know, have a conference about stuttering at the White House would be really cool. 
Absolutely. And there is, with Biden, there's the disability stigma that I think transcends generations, although now our current time and place, there's a lot of work toward destigmatization. But certainly for the majority of Biden's life, as you said, he's pushing 80, like, and especially during his childhood and teenage years, people and men in particular didn't talk about their problems. They didn't, as you said, his dad said, never complain, never explain. That was his antidote. And it's so hard to break your mind out of that pattern. So where where are younger people in this uh, debate, if it is a debate? I know you mentioned uh, in the article, uh, I think he's a professor at NYU who for six months was on, uh, when he was going back and forth on a subway, he would proclaim in a loud voice, I'm a stutterer. And I thought, what a scene in New York. They probably wouldn't even pay any attention to somebody yelling. <laughs> uh, but where are we going, not only on an individual basis, but the societal issue is how do people with a stutter uh, get work? Now, you obviously picked a profession that being a stutterer uh, is not the most important thing your writing ability is the most important thing i don't know if that that's why you picked it but you know and our orientation is to try to figure out how to show people who have power in uh, hiring people with disabilities that people with disabilities bring a lot of value to their company so i, I think i've brought up at least three issues there and they were in common but since publishing that story I have met so many different stutters from all walks of life all backgrounds all professions and maybe this would surprise you maybe it won't but lawyers doctors let's just keep it on them for a minute both lawyers and doctors many you know i would say over a dozen each of those professions told me that they were told in law school in medical school that this won't work out. You need to find a new career. You can't be a lawyer if you stutter. You can't get up in front of a judge and argue a case. You can't adequately represent a client. And, you know, that was the uh, premise of my cousin Vinny. Their first lawyer is 
played by an actor who stutters, Austin Pendleton, who gets up to make his opening remarks for the jury, and he can barely get one sound out. And the jurors are are mouth agape. They're revolting. They don't know what to do. And it's meant to be a laugh out loud, funny scene. But it's now, it's a very tough scene to watch now. And recently in an interview with Rowan Stone, the actor who played that part said it was one of the biggest regrets of his career. And that he, he, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to misquote him, but it was, it was something he went back on with a lot of regret. And the same thing of being told you can't do something, like I said, happened with so many doctors who I talked to who were told that they, they can't be a doctor who talks to people. If you want to be a doctor, you should get a job where you're sitting in a basement looking at radiology labs or, or told that you'll never pass the timed oral exam that it takes to become a doctor. And these people beat those odds and they, they conquer those challenges. But they were also then, you know, even with the degree in hand, they were then uh, denied jobs in some cases. I talked to a nurse in my book who was flat out told, we would hire you if you didn't stutter. And those are just two professions, but that kind of discrimination, that, that kind of stigmatization is very real across a lot of professions. I pursued journalism because English and writing in particular was always my best subject, always my favorite subject. And I do feel that typing on typing gives me a, a feeling of clarity and control that I don't have out loud. So I'm sure psychologically I did pursue it for that reason. But a big part of journalism is also picking up the phone and interviewing people, going out and introducing yourself to people, talking to people. And that part of it is arguably the most fun and arguably the most important. And that was and occasionally still is a big challenge for me. Early in my career, I often resorted to email interviews because I was too afraid to pick up the telephone. And you're just never going to get the same thing in an email interview that you'll, you'll get either in person or over the phone because it takes away that, that actual connection. It takes away the 
improvisation, the spontaneity. And I really had to try to desensitize myself from the sound of my own voice and the sensation of blocking. And even doing something like this podcast is something that I would have never, ever done five years ago. I noticed that uh, on uh, YouTube, I, I looked you up and there was <laughs> uh, the National Stutter Association, NSA. Uh, and the person who introduced you uh, talked about how seeing you after the article was released and, and then you were being interviewed was so stunning for him because he was a stutter that you never see anybody with a stutter or hear anybody who's a stutter. And so it was a revelation that the person could make coherent thoughts. Uh, it's just a lack of role models or people who just, as you said, just are not an attorney or a nurse or you, know, you never hear it. And years ago, there was a country Western singer named Mel Tillis. I don't know if you remember him, but he, when he sang, he had no stutter. When he spoke, he did, and he was always the object of, I mean, of sort of affectionate humor, but it was always, you know, sort of like the equivalent of step and fetch it uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, so the stutter was always part of the, the act, you know, waiting for Mel to finish the sentence. Uh, and, and that's the problem is one of the things inclusionary workers trying to address through podcasts or our series on Bloomberg is to just literally just show people, talk to them, listen to them, find out what they're doing to break out of this, what they call inspirational porn stuff that the media loves to do that they never stop doing. And it's always the last segment it's on Friday and the, you know, Laura O'Donnell tears up. I mean, it's just like endless and you just, these are all good people and they're good journalists. And yet they don't for some reason follow legislation this year, you know, under Build Back Better, there's legislation to change certain things in the area of disability. And it's excruciating to try to find news stories about that. Whereas the other thing, oh, we just love to do this, you know, the little kid and, and the mommy. And uh, so, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do here. When you first went into journalism, your first job, how did you get it? I mean, did this not present itself immediately when you approached an editor at a newspaper? I don't know if the Denver Post was the first place you worked. I mean, I interned at the Denver Post between my junior and senior year of college. And then after I graduated, I went back and I worked there full time for two years. And in my cover letter for my first jobs, I would disclose that I'm a person who stutters and that it's made me work harder. It's given me grit it's given me empathy and and i would try to at least manage the hiring person's expectations by putting that in the cover letter so 
if and when we did get an interview, that would at least be established. Um, but I, I give my first boss at the Denver Post, Ray Rinaldi, I give him a, a, a lot of credit for taking a chance on me and for hiring me despite my stutter. Uh, because the way that I am communicating right now is obviously just fluent. There are blocks and repetitions and pauses, but it's much more conversational and much more coherent than the way I was communicating back at age 20, 21. And my future editor there just believed in my clips that I sent him, my writing samples, and decided to look past my verbal communication struggles. And without that, you know, I would have never had a career at all. Uh, and he also pushed me to get outside my comfort zone and do interviews in person or pick up the telephone. And he treated me like any other uh, employee. He, 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 he didn't um, make me feel othered in any way and I, I um, owe so much to that. Uh, well, I, that's a wonderful story about uh, somebody who sought the ability uh, which is what we're always pushing here you know and the ability comes out of grappling with the disability you, you do have to have more grit you have to be more organized you have to be more sensitive I mean it's just if you're going to do anything in the world, those are the characteristics you have to have. Um, I, I know that President Biden in the interview said, don't let it define you. And uh, that's one of the uh, enduring issues here. I mean, it, it obviously does define people, but you don't want it to define you. But on the other hand, you don't want to proclaim that, you know, this is all that you are. It's just one aspect of who you are, and uh, it, it uh, you know, I think part of why he has not been as much of an advocate around disability, you know, as far as I know, none of his cabinet appointees, the major ones, had any disability. Although the diversity of the whole cabinet was extraordinary in in, in breaking from the past, is that he again go back? He has refused to sort of allow it to to be who he is and accept it. And, and therefore to a degree, he can't get on board with this whole issue. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of where we had as a society and how society deals with stutterers and other people with disabilities, what do you think we need to do, society needs to do to allow full inclusion of everyone who stutters that's a great question. 
And something I've been reflecting on these past few years is that writing that article opened a, a, a million doors for me personally and professionally and gave me gave me opportunities to write a book to go do interviews on tv radio podcasts but before i wrote that story and in the time since i've written about many other topics and i've written many stories that have nothing to do with stuttering at all and pretty much the only invitations i get to to appear in any sort of media um, interview are about stuttering. People want me to talk about one thing. And that is complicated. You know, I'm honored to talk about it. I'm honored to be asked. I completely agree with you that there are just aren't many examples of people actively actively stuttering on TV or you know on the radio on a podcast unless it's for for comic relief. So I'm honored to talk about it. But I contain multitudes, you know. I have yeah. I have a lot of other interests. I've, I've I've written about a lot of other topics, and and just as a way of answering your question, I think that the first level of change is inviting a person who stutters or a person with any other disability to come on air at all and the next level the deeper level the more challenging level is inviting them on air to talk about other topics like imagine uh, a post-presidential debate cnn panel with 10 people all these big a-listers. Imagine if one of those 10 people had a significant disability that possibly interrupted the perfect flow of live TV and a network, I'm not calling out CNN, I mean any network at all, if, if a network decided that what this person has to say is important enough that we're going to 
let it, you know, quote unquote, disrupt our broadcast or disrupt the flow of our broadcast. So that's really the next level of seeing disabled people in the public arena talk about topics beyond their own disability. Well, it's, it's funny you mention that because I've uh, given talks at uh, the Berkeley School of Music Institute for Art and Special Needs and the Kennedy School. And I use a clip from CNN, you know, after the presidential debates or the election results. And there now nine commentators. There's men and women and gay people and African-Americans, but there's never, ever, ever <laughs> a commentator who has a disability of any visual kind or, you know, be a stutterer. And it's like, where's the 10th person? <laughs> it was the third man movie. There's the 10th person. There's nine people there. One more person would be who should be on that panel. And I was actually going to ask you about politics because I know that's one of your areas. And I wanted to know your thoughts about the midterm elections and where we are after the insurrection. But it is it's stunning that uh, Charles Krauthammer, who I didn't know for years was paralyzed because he was always shot from the waist up. Is When he died, that was it. He was the beginning and the end of political commentary by somebody with a disability in this country. Although Michael Gershon has been appearing on PBS NewsHour occasionally and he's suffering from cancer and he's shaking a lot. Uh, I don't know whether it's Parkinson's disease. So he sort of has entered and he's also has depression. So he's sort of filling like three slots right now but he's not a regular commentator. There's just not the equivalent of Van Jones or, or some of the other people people that are on or, or who are hosting shows now uh, who are African-Americans or African-American women. There just isn't anybody from any of the mi minority groups who has a disability even. And ironically, the two largest groups with disabilities are African-American and ind indigenous people. So there's sort of reverse racism going on when you exclude all people who happen to be the categories you're pursuing, but if they happen to be in a wheelchair or missing an arm or something or a stutter, you're not gonna go after them. Uh, so what do you think about what's going on with the midterm elections? Um, well, I appreciate you asking a non-stuttering question, but I, you know, to be fair, I agreed to, do this interview knowing we'd be talking about stuff. Okay. No, so, but I thought, yeah. well, I didn't yeah. want to just ask you about, because it said, you know, you focus on politics. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love politics. I used to work in politics, so I thought I'd ask you, you know. Um, you know, it's hard to say because prior to last week, when this Joe Manchin Chuck Schumer tentative deal was announced, it, it seemed as though Biden's presidency was totally doomed. It seemed as though the Democrats were totally doomed this fall. And, you know, it remains to be seen if that 
new mansion deal is going to make its way through Congress. But if it does, I think that will make midterms much more competitive. And I don't have the gut feeling either way right now about either 2022 or 2024, but it's, it's amazing just how people can make up their minds about something and it can be set in stone and be completely over, but then, you know, something can happen and it can, it can change all of our perspectives. What do you think? I think the Democrats are going to get slaughtered. <laughs> I, I, they might not be slaughtered as much as they were a week ago. Um, but I just, you know, all of those other issues uh, that are encompassed by the bill are way away. And they can call it, you know, the reduction of the inflation act or whatever they're calling it now. But the reality is that people have been through uh, two years of COVID and then they got hit with 9% inflation and it's a midterm election. And usually they, people just go, whoever's in, we can vote the other way. And we don't like what's going on. And look at the price of eggs. <laughs> it was very concrete. And, you know, I, I think they're a little bit better positioned and, and Joe doesn't look as out of it as he was looking before, you know, and always getting rid of somebody from Al Qaeda helps in the short term and, you know, and they got the chips bill through and, and the gun legislation. So, I mean, there's at least some feeling that the Democratic base will come out more than they would have come out. Uh, three weeks ago, because at that point they were just becoming so disillusioned with his centrist approach and Joe Manchin kind of running the country uh, that he looked very ineffective. But, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, the odds are against him, but it may be closer than, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, which is good. Maybe we should have like a podcast just around the, the midterm elections. You can come on and I can get some other people and we just see what we can come up with. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah I, I think it's, it's really striking how absent the voices of people with disabilities are in our uh, uh, dramatic series. Uh, I noticed there was a report from the LGBTQ community that it had risen to 3.2% of the characters and then just slipped back to 2.4% this year. And so we were like, oh my God, it's like 2%? Well, it was up to 3%. And then all of the reality programs and the game show programs, I mean, game shows are, there are no people with disabilities and game shows, no hosts, no contestants. I'm sure nobody behind the scenes is just all able-bodied people who can jump up and down, you know, and exultation when they win $20,000. Last week or maybe maybe two weeks ago, there was a contestant on America's Got Talent who was a young woman who stuttered. And oh. before performing, um, had to give a monologue and answer some questions and was notably just went and then she 
plays her song and plays guitar and sings and just has an incredible voice and has a lot of soul in her voice and uh just like Mel Taylor's and just like countless other performers yeah it disappears perfectly fluent. yeah, yeah it's it's really different neural pathway in the brain it's a whole different thing um so but, if a stutterer would sing what they wanted to say in a meeting would it work that's hard to say because that there's always the element of time pressure and that's it's different. Uh, uh, conversation is different than singing. Like, did you happen to catch that sixty minutes segment on Tony Bennett? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Tony Bennett has a you know hard time doing many of life's tasks um, now at this age, and uh, but he, he can get up on get up on stage and he can sing and those lyrics and melodies are just deep in the recess of his brain and it comes out and he's not even really trying or, or, or thinking it just happens so that's, that's where it's it like, like yeah. when i sing like i do i do karaoke over the weekend and it's the exact same thing really interesting well we'll have you on on our karaoke podcast <laughs> oh man uh, well let me thank you for taking so much time and illuminating uh, this area uh, in your article uh as you can tell i can see cross uh connections between other forms of disabilities we're and that's one of the great challenges of the disability community is so fragmented by the different disabilities. They don't with internally recognize how many commonalities they have uh, in terms of the prejudice they face, the stigmas they deal with, the reaction from uh, the outside world to their talents and abilities. And uh, I wish you great luck and success, which I, I'm sure will keep coming in your writing for the Atlantic. and. Uh, uh, you know, I look forward to the book and uh, we can help in any way with it. Uh, glad to do that, too. So thank, thank you. So much, Larry. It was a real pleasure talking with you. And I really appreciate everything that you're doing with this podcast. Thanks.